Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Okay, um, first of all, um, congratulations because we've actually gotten through, um, believe it or not, the most difficult epistle, um, the most difficult doctrinal, in my opinion, uh, epistle in the whole New Testament. Um, and the hard part is over. The rest of this letter um, is not uh, is not as hard. So I'm I don't anticipate taking very long with these. Um, I don't have a lot to say because um, I don't know how to talk about these subjects very well. So we will pick up with Romans twelve thirteen. Um, we'll read them all together and then we'll go there. These are again these are much shorter chapters. So I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. He who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who contributes, in liberality. He who gives aid, with zeal. He who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. But love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly, brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal, be aglow with the Spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil. Take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of him who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay all of them their dues, taxes to whom taxes are dues, due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is full time now for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Okay. So this is um, now where we get into um, what should be the result of um, all of that Paul has spoken about in the in the in the going up to this, right? So going up to this, I'm not going to summarize chapter by chapter again, but it's to say that Saint Paul has been talking about, okay, you guys have a problem, you guys have contention among you, you guys don't treat each other well. And it seems to me like you guys don't really get what, what's going on here because you're all asserting yourselves in a way that doesn't make sense. And so he proceeded to talk about how the Romans, how the pagans were messed up, and then how the Jews were messed up, um, how, how Christ himself was faithful. Um, and then he moves from there now in this context um, to say, okay, now that you know... Um, who this Jesus is, why we're reconciled in him. Now he wants to talk to us about what things should look like if you are um, if you are with God. Okay? Um, sorry, I'm just turning on the katana part of things. Okay. So, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the new of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is probably um, Romans 12 to um, those of us who went to the ECCYC have memorized that verse from the jingle. But the um, Romans 12 to is probably my like my, one of my favorite verses in the, in the New Testament. But before we get to that, is that St. Paul is now getting to the goal of all of what we've spoken about so far, which was very complicated. He is trying to get at now that a life in Christ, a reconciliation through Christ, a death and resurrection through baptism in Christ, should result in a complete renewal and reformation. You must be a different person if you're in Christ. And what he's getting into without even using the word cross is what does the what do people of the cross look like? Like let's move beyond the theoretical. What does it look like if somebody is actually living and believing in this is what he's talking about now. So he spoke about death and dying earlier and dying to the old master to sin and death that those are now not a master. 
And he's saying, okay, what does that death look like? What does your sacrifice of life look like? Um, and I don't think it's an accident. He starts off saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, because part of um, the contention that was going on um, in the previous chapters was about the law and about sacrifice, about those things. He's saying, here is the new sacrifice. The new sacrifice is a spiritual one, is to offer your whole bodies. Um, and so the rest of these two chapters, he's going to be talking about what does it look like to be living but dying at all times. He's going to talk about how do the body, how the body and the mind are affected by sin. And I want to pause there because that's why I think I care so much about the expression, the renewing of your mind. Because I think in our time, we don't think enough about how our thoughts affect us. How if we don't have a right mindset, it's going to lead to a completely wrong conduct. And so, so many people treat spiritual life and so many people treat Christianity or religion in general as a series of tasks, duties, um, attendance, right? That's why you'll have people who most of their confession is really not about what they think about, it's about what actions they did. Where somebody won't, for example, let's say you did a service. You might not confess that you did the service completely egotistically, or that you signed up for the service for one reason, even though it was a good service, even though you're good at it, even though your father confession approved, etc., etc., that you wanted to do it to get the girl or to get the guy. Or that you were doing it because um, you're hoping you'll get noticed and then maybe you'll get ordained a deacon or a priest. Right? These are different things. And many people don't think of that. I don't just mean about wrong thoughts in general. But what I mean is that having a wrong understanding is going to lead to a wrong outcome. If you view confession, for example, as um, a legal matter of here are my lists, I'm guilty of these, I'm going to be convicted, then you might not really understand the sacrament. If you don't understand why God created man, you're going to have a totally wrong view of God. You might view him as a complete and total tyrant. Um, and I'm, I'm using all these examples, like I did a whole retreat on this and, and I'm not even good and qualified to talk about it the way it should be talked about. What I mean is that that verse by itself could be, is, is the meaning of, of your approach to life, period. How you think, how you perceive affects your behavior. What you think of another person affects. Imagine if you think your priest is a liar. It's going to completely affect how you approach your priest. If you think your parents hate you, it's going to totally affect how you view your parents. I'm not even talking about whether you're right or wrong, but simply that the renewal of your mind. And that's why St. Paul is starting with the mind of saying, fix your mind. Have a right understanding. If you have a right understanding, right behavior will follow. And that even more so that your mind has been infected by sin. And that because you've been living in sin, you might not know, and I might not know, 
how messed up our thinking has been. That's why some of you might feel like, oh wow, I remember this one time I had a spiritual high and everything was amazing and I just suddenly just viewed things differently. I was calmer, I was more peaceful, I didn't view things this way, I wasn't testy, I loved this, even though I usually didn't like that. Um, all of those things are things that were different. And it's because you got this small taste of health where you found out that being healthy spiritually or physically, if you want to use a physical analogy, feels good and that you didn't know how it felt because you're not used to it. Um, I remember, just here's a, a decent analogy. The first time that I took um, medical uh, corticosteroids, I had no idea um, that I was in pain in certain places until the pain was gone, right? And that it, it would affect lethargy, it would affect things like that. So I'm just using an example to say that we don't even know sometimes how much we're being affected. In other words, to me, the mind, the mind or the noose to use patristic language or desert father's language, um, it's, it's like the glasses through which you're seeing the world. And you might not recognize that you're wearing glasses. And if you don't put on the right pair of glasses, the right prescription, you're not going to see properly. Or another analogy, a cup of water, a clear cup of water, a clear glass with clear water in it. When everything is pure, you see through it perfectly. If you put food coloring, if you put mud, if you put dirt, if you put anything in it, suddenly you don't see the world properly anymore. And so what we're going to get into right now is the liturgy of the people. What does the work of the people look like in daily living. And this is as important as Eucharistic lit liturgy. Um, it's not of the same caliber, but it's, it's, you can't be a Christian. You're actually not even supposed to be participating at the table, theoretically. Um, and I'm saying theoretically because you should talk to your spiritual father. I'm not trying to say if you've sinned, don't have communion. But theoretically, we should be very careful about going to Eucharist if we're not living this. Um, but we can talk about that in Corinthians if we go there. Um, and so this rest is how, how the logos, how we become logikon, how the rational word of God, how we become that, how we become rational and reason. St. Paul is so intentional. Okay. So, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I bid everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. Um, I'm, I'm not going to use a lot of commentary today. It's, I'm gonna, it's not going to be a long one, don't worry. Um, I'm going to get more into just what these things might mean on a practical level. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe you guys will have questions about how to live that at the end, if not, no problem. So first of all, he's saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And that's, I think, again, all of these are the disease of our time. This is when you think you know. It's coming at things with a, with a sense of, oh, they should have asked me because I know. Or, huh. I don't think they took this into consideration, but the sense of like, they're dumb compared to me. Or 
I hope that service service gets delegated to me because that's totally me. I'm the one good at that. Um, or in the Roman context, right? He's like, okay, you Romans are looking at the Jews as though you're a better people, and you Jews are looking at the Romans like you're better people. And he's saying, don't don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Um, instead, he says, judge sober judgment. Judge rational, reasonable judgment. The key is the mind. Okay? And so the, the key here for all of us is how do we assess something? Right? I'm not going to rehash because there's two Thursday talks in the, in the last month or so about this very issue, so I don't want to completely rehash it. But this is what he's talking about. How do you assess something? Do you assess things with you as the standard? Or do you, what's your immediate reaction when you hear something? Is it to be, is it for you to immediately assess it of what you think? Or do you start off by asking, where is the truth? And can you recognize that God has given um, people different gifts? For example, do you sit there judging how the bishop should run his church or his meeting or his diocese, how he should have handled another priest? Do you judge how your boss should run the team? Do you judge how your teammate should speak in a meeting? Do you judge how well your parents are parenting? If they were better parents, they would. Do you judge your children's quote-unquote true intentions? Do you evaluate soberly, is the key word, or do you just evaluate? The two different things. One has an adjective or, or an adverb, um, and the other one is just a verb. Are you evaluating the right way? And to use the word right sorry to emphasize that word, is to appeal to a standard. That is how one should judge soberly. And he's going to get into what that sober judgment looks like. So imagine, just to, to pull that in, imagine if I start saying, as a former pharmacist right now as a priest, um, wow, that engineer is so dumb. He clearly should have used such and such material. Who am I? I have no idea the first thing about materials. Maybe I think this is a dumb material, but it's the only one that doesn't melt at such and such temperature, or it's the only one that keeps its tone, or it's the only one that conducts. I don't know. Right? So I'm using it as, 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 a, as a material example to make it easier. But think about how often you're doing that to others. You see an, an encounter for example, and you're like, wow, he was so mean, but you don't know the background. You don't know how long he's been holding it in, holding it in, holding it in, holding it in, and he burst. That maybe, maybe he was wrong in the way he outbursted, but because of your judgment, you're like, that guy's a jerk. I would never work with him. And then in fact, I'm going to warn people, don't deal with that guy, right? These are things that we do. Be very 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 careful do not judge 
unsober judgment. In fact, it would be better not to evaluate at all. Four, as in one body, we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one another. This is the unity and diversity thing. Okay? And we often covet one another's gifts. I think that's a normal phenomenon in humans. Or I shouldn't say normal, a common phenomenon in humans. And Paul deals with this more thoroughly in Corinthians. In Corinthians, he devotes um, an entire few chapters to dealing with spiritual gifts and jealousy of gifts and things like that. But I think what I want to emphasize here is not just that we have one another's gifts, but is this is the second part where he says that we are members one of another. We are parts of another. And, and the reason why I'm emphasizing that is that I think sometimes we're good at recognizing that we don't all have the same skill set. Um, we might get jealous of other people's skill set, um, but I think we're we're relatively decent at knowing that I might have a different skill set. But do we forget that we are parts of another, one uh, one another? As in, you might recognize that you're a hand or a foot in the body, but we're not thinking about how that relates to the body. We're only thinking of our handship or our footship, okay, to 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 try and take it that way. Where you don't, you you are part of the body, but you but you act like you're not part of the body. If you want to know whether you have that mindset or not, ask if you think that your sins matter to the whole church or just to yourself. Because if you think that your sin is only a personal issue, then you don't, you don't, you actually don't feel that you're part of the body. Because if I am, to maybe use a different body part, if I'm a bicep, if I'm a muscle, not that biceps are actually very useful, but let's pretend biceps are super useful and that they're the source of strength. They're not. But if they were, then I would need to recognize that if I am not fit, if I'm not keeping my bicep toned, I have become the source of weakness to my whole body. If I have gangrene, I'm the foot and I have gangrene, the whole body is going to become um, immobile because of me. And that's why if I have this mindset, I'm not going to be in my own world. I'm not going to say, oh, whatever, I'm just going to pray in the back. There's so many things. I'm like, I don't want to spend hours on every verse in here because we could, right? I'm going to stand in the back of the church because um, who am I, right? Even though I'm a deacon, I'm not going to stand with the deacons. I'm going to hide behind whatever bench and act like I'm not there. I'm a Sunday school servant, but um, I'm not going to go there because what I give to the Lord is between me and God. I am going to tell off this youth because I really think it's my right. How um, that affects other people um, doesn't matter because it's between me and God. Is that your mindset? If so, you don't have sober judgment, you have not had renewed thinking, and you don't understand that you're affecting the body. That is the reason why the early church had public confession. It wasn't public shaming for the sake of public shaming. It's uncomfortable for everyone. 
It was a real recognition, a real recognition that everything I do affects the whole body. And that's why it's not okay to do church by yourself, right? It's not okay to do solo anything. You are a part of the body. Even your Eucharistic participation is not your personal participation. It's your participation in the whole um, church. Um, I will move on lest I spend 12 hours against what I promised. Okay. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Here I'm just going to pause to say, start off by recognizing grace. Grace equals gift. The reason why I'm saying that is because if you want to figure out how to deal with what you might have been doing wrong in verse 5, is that you have to start off by recognizing that you got a gift. And that if you got a gift, then it wasn't really yours. It was given to you. So you need to ask, did the person give it to me to just play with, or did the person give it to me to use? So for example, let's say my parents are going away on their long-earned vacation, and me and my siblings are are young and we still live at the house and my parents say um okay to my sister you're the oldest here's the money for the groceries here's the money for um some entertainment here's some um i'm not giving you extra hoping that there's enough there um for you guys to be able to do what you need to do it was a gift it's not my money it's my parents money and my parents gave me money to use in a particular way. Am I using the gift the way um, it's supposed to be used? Um, or doesn't it? Um, I see some questions, so that's good. I will come back to that one um, at the end. But it's a good question. So remember that, that, that it's a gift. Second, what I would say... Um, is that God entrusts people with gifts, because we sometimes get jealous, based on two things. At least two things that I can, I can see, and I, I won't speak for God. Their trustworthiness and the community's needs. So if I'm known to squander money or that I have a gambling addiction, I'm sorry. Even if I'm the oldest child, my parents aren't going to give me the money. Because I'm not going to be responsible with it. Because we will sit there and being like, how come God gave this person this and I don't appear to have any? I mean, everyone has a gift. But ask yourself whether you're trustworthy or not. What, what does your relationship with God look like? But two, it's also because of the need of the whole community. Because maybe all three kids suck with money. It's possible. But that the parents are like, well, I, I can't not give them money. So I'm going to give it to them in this way. What have been Right? God God cover them. God God help it. Um, so gifts are a gift. Gifts are not your right. Um, verse seven. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who contributes in liberality, 
He who gives aid with zeal. He who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So, were you aware that these are gifts? Because I think when people think of spiritual gifts, they think of exorcism, speaking in tongues, um, being a soweh, a spirit born, um, reading minds, the, the really flashy kind of gifts. As a matter of fact, some of the gifts that he lists here are not in the list of gifts that he puts in Corinthians when he lists the gifts. Did you ever think about service as a gift? That not everyone has that service. That teaching is not everyone's gift. That, that there's a gift called encouraging, exhortation. Did you know that that's a gift? There's a reason why you can sometimes be like, when I'm down, I know who I need around this person. Your spirit is recognizing that they have a particular gift in that, right? In contribution, in liberality. There are some people who are so stingy, no matter what kind of conversation you have with them, they're, they're, they're Ebenezer Scrooges, no matter what you say. But there are other people who sometimes just give so liberally that you're like, dude, stop, stop. Like, your poor family has nothing. Right or you're not gonna be able to pay your tuition. Just hold, hold at least your tuition, right? There, it's it's a gift. Um, in giving help, that that's a gift, and being merciful and being cheerful. I don't know that many of us thought of that as gifts. And and I I'm gonna just say something about prophecy very briefly. I think too many people think of themselves that they have the gift of prophecy. Because the gift of prophecy is not the gift of telling the future. That's not what prophecy actually means. It's discerning God's voice. It's saying, thus says the Lord. It's speaking in the name of God and saying, here is the truth. And I think a lot of us think we have that gift. And we deal with one another, with our parents, with our friends, with our, with our comrades, with everybody, like we have that. This is that spirit of assertiveness that we're talking about. This, this sense of, of um, virtue signaling, this sense of, of, of speaking dogmatically when there is not a dogma. Be very careful because that particular gift, I think too many people speak in its name, and I think that's dangerous. You can really damage people um, by speaking as though you have the gift of prophecy when you do not. In the same way, just to make it clear that these gifts are equal, if you pretend to have the gift of exhortation and you don't, you can do a lot of damage with that, right? I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, sometimes when somebody dies, sometimes when a child dies, this one strikes personal in my family, um, people will say things like, don't worry, you'll just have another one. So the person who just lost a child is like, um, that's not comforting. Like, what is my child the commodity? Like, it's okay for them to, to come and go, right? And so here's somebody thinking that they're exhorting or comforting and they don't have that gift, right? Whereas maybe your gift is the giving. And so your comfort to somebody can be in your giving of saying, I have nothing to say. I don't have the gift of speech. I say this sometimes even as a priest, where I'm like, I'm sorry. I know someone just died. I know that I'm the priest. I'm supposed to have all sorts of nice words for you. I don't have them. 
If I had them, I'd give them to you, but I, I, I don't have them. Can you tell me what I can do to help? Don't, don't presume a gift um, that you don't have. And I have presumed to have gifts that I don't have, and I've seen how disastrous that can be, right? Maybe you have a friend who's struggling with faith. Don't be the guy who thinks that you know how to deal with it if you don't. Maybe a friend of yours is more qualified. No problem. Maybe another priest, if you're a priest, is more qualified. Maybe another deacon. Maybe another teacher. Right? Maybe another social worker. Maybe another psychologist. Maybe another anything. Ministry of health worker. Anything. You might not be the one with the gift. No problem. But this, this is what St. Paul is saying. Please don't forget what we're talking about here. St. Paul is saying if you're a Christian, this is how it shows itself. So, um, step back and picture this. What would the church like if we within the church dealt with another in this way, recognizing each other's gifts. Taking a step back. There'd be no fights. There wouldn't be. There'd be no calling people out. Sometimes we try and act, unless it's your responsibility, of course, but sometimes we try and act like we have the gifts that others have, but we don't. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't have the gift of comforting. Abuna Thanasius, the, the priest from my home church in Kitchener, um, who raised me, oh my Lord, he had some funeral sermons where I'm like, where does that come from? Um, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift. Where he just, something was given and he just knew what to say. Um, sometimes someone is struggling with the church or with others, and I might want to be the one to say the right words to the person or whatever is needed. And it might not even be motivated explicitly or obviously by ego just so that you know i'm not saying that everyone who does this is intentionally being pretentious although you might still be being pretentious myself too but just that you might not recognize that it's not the gift um that you have right and so ask yourself when people show up on the scene that have the same skill set of you or that people are responding to more than you this is the question the testing question do you get upset? Do you get upset? If you get upset, or if you have jealousy, know that you're not there yet. It's not the end of the world, but just know that you're still you're still struggling there. Instead, Saint Paul says, sharing to Katena, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What is genuine love? It's to love for the sake of real love. It is to love for the sake of capital L love, who is, which is not a thing, it is a person, it is a who. Not an it, it's a who. You do what's right for the sake of being right. Keep in mind what Paul has been talking about this whole apostle, epistle. VK Osini, righteousness. He's coming back to that, of saying, here's what it looks like to be righteous. It means to do the right thing, which is love. They are synonymous. Wrap your head around that. Real love is to do what's right. What's right is not an object, action, or thing. Real love is the person of Christ is the Trinity, it is God. So to love is to put on Christ. To love is to become Christ. 
that shouldn't be shocking to you because in the doctrinal part that we talked about earlier, we got into this whole sense of image and likeness, being conformed to his image. That, that's how we become more right. Righteousness equals capital H health in what we were talking about in those previous analogies. I'm hoping that you see how this is all coming together of saying, this is how you live it. Now go be healthy, he's saying. Now go be right. And not right in the social sense of, ha ha, I'm correct. It's I am Christ. So genuine love is for the sake of real love, for the sake of rightness. Anything short means you want something. That's the difference. To not love for the sake of love itself means on some level you want something from someone else. Could be reward, honor, prestige, closeness, intimacy, something. But you want something. You didn't do it because it is right. And if you're that kind of person like me, that means you'll most likely struggle with integrity. Because a person with integrity is the one who's really mastered rightness for the sake of rightness. Although even there, some people are doing rightness for the sake of ego for somebody to say, look how right you are. Okay, But a person of integrity is consistent with choosing right. Um, in, in other words, choosing lovingly, genuinely, even in secret even in secret. To hate what's evil, and keep in mind that he explicitly said here to hate what is evil, not to hate evildoers. To hate what is evil. He's putting this on the object, not on the subject. But hating what's evil means don't choose what's evil. As we talked about earlier, with the Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. To hate is to not select. To love is to select. So he's saying select always what's right, to be righteous. Always unselect what is wrong, which means hate wrong. That's all he's saying. It has little to do with how you feel. So often we confuse our feelings with righteousness. And how you feel is actually relevant, guys. It, it's, it's irrelevant to the doing. Okay, It is relevant to understanding yourself. There's no, I don't deny that. But it's irrelevant to the rightness and the wrongness. So, for example, you might love junk food. Sorry, like junk food, because love is the choosing. You might like junk food and hate it. And that you didn't choose it. You chose, instead, healthy food, even though you actually would like the junk food. That's why sometimes you might struggle in your spiritual life with saying, but like... I'm, I'm doing this, but honestly, I would much rather go to the club as though you became like filthy. It's like, no, good for you. You didn't choose that, which is good. As you get more and more healthy, you might actually come to the point where you dislike the wrong thing, but it's irrelevant to the doing. Um, I can say this because I'm not in, in California right now. I don't like to, to, to suck up, um, so I'm not in my, my own backyard right now. But the image of this to me, to be quite honest with you, just because it's, it's helpful sometimes to see images, some of you on here right now are, are from Cali, um, Um I don't usually like to name people who are alive, but something that I've been able to see as somebody who serves under his, his, his care and, and, and leadership is how consistent he is in choosing right, no matter who he's dealing with. 
that Ambasarabiyun behind closed doors is the same Ambasarabiyun as he is in public. Ambasarabiyun doesn't have coarser rules for people that he likes, and he doesn't treat badly people that aren't his style of personality. He doesn't have kosa. Okay? So if you're genuine, you will not be selective in choosing right based on who you're with, what you're doing, and where you are. Those are not, that would not be a thing um, for you. Um, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the spirit. Serve the Lord. So now he's bringing in emotion. Okay? Now he's bringing in affection. He said, have brotherly affection, which means Philadelphia. Right? That um, That's what Philadelphia means, the city of brotherly love. Um, he's saying, have brotherly, which in Old English there was no like unified gender word. Um, brotherly meant everybody. He's saying, conduct yourselves, all of you, as siblings. All of you. Be affectionate to everyone. All of you. Be nice. Right? And he's saying, instead um, of what you normally do, compete to give more, not to take more. Compete to praise more, rather than to put down. Imagine. Imagine how solid people's relationships would be. Marriage. Parenthood. Parenthood son or daughterhood, siblinghood, anything, friendship, if we were doing that. If we were trying as much as possible to give rather than to take and not to point out people's flaws. Um, I've told this story so much, but I'm going to say it again. There's this priest that really affected me in this way in California who I really, really love. I won't say his name because he's got a following and I don't want it to get to him, um, like news-wise. Um, I used to have, I still sometimes do it, but I had a very bad habit of being really critical um, of people and finding something wrong in them, even if I liked them, right? So I, it would be like, oh, that person, he's, yeah, yeah, he's good, but, um, but doesn't he insert some kind of wrong thing there? So one time I was sitting with this priest and he brought up another priest and it's like, Abuna so-and-so, I'm like, he's like, do you know him? I'm like, I, I think, isn't he the guy who ha ha, insert something negative. And this priest looked at me with like this look of confusion of like, how is that relevant? Um, and he was just like, yeah, maybe. But anyway, I brought him up so, and he didn't say anything negative. And that would happen over and over and over to the point that it made me start to feel really nasty that I was doing that, which made me stop doing it, right? Seeing somebody not doing that, that he looks for the good as opposed to the bad, really affected me. Look for the good. Um, I know a monk in, in, in St. Anthony's who's got this gift. I'm just trying to show you what these people look like because these are, these are now characteristics of people now. They're not theory. Where he just knows how to make everyone feel like the most important person in the world. Because he's listening to them. In the listening, he's trying to find out who is this person what is beautiful about them that I can see? And you can tell when somebody makes you feel good about yourself versus somebody who makes you feel dismal, right? And because of it, people flock to this guy, right? Naturally, because the gift becomes manifest. Um, one of my father of confessions that I had showed it to me in confession, where it was the first time in my life that I'm confessing a sin, and I'm so down on myself because I'm like, man, I really messed up. And I, and I had all these reasons why I felt like garbage. 
and he and in the middle of all of it he's just like good for you what a great way of dealing with it you just dealt with a bad situation in a really good way you directed your energy towards this and made the most out of it and what could have been a really 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 terrible situation work some good from it and i'm like are we in the same confession like did you hear what i just said i did right that it's 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 beautiful right um my my spiritual father right now the same thing right where sometimes i'll go in thinking of it um there's a there's a person that i know who has the blessing or the gift of being able to see um saints from time to time and one of the first times that I, I interacted with this person, um, I knew that he regularly saw one of the saints that, that's my intercessor. And I was doing something really messed up. So I was avoiding the person like a plague because I was so afraid of what the saint might have said about me or might say to him, to me, um, that I wasn't ready to handle. So I was, I was avoiding when the person finally cornered me into a room, the person said, saying so-and-so, and, -so, and I, I'm not gloating because I, I really think that they're just trying to make me feel better about myself, is so proud of you. That you're struggling so hard. They didn't view my struggle. They didn't view my struggle the way I viewed my struggle. Right? That's huge. It was such a big deal to me. And it really affected how I treat other people. So even if you don't have certain gifts, learn from other people's gifts. Then he says, be zealous. Be excited to do things. Have a passion for things. When people see that, they are going to want to serve the Lord too. Okay? Think of anybody you know who's passionate about something. Okay? Abuna Thanasius made me want to read every book that exists on the planet because of how much he reads and how excited he'd be about how much he talks about it. Abuna Lazarus. Excuse me, when Lazarus made me want to become like Jesus Prayer Guru for a couple of years because of his passion for Jesus Prayer. He made me want to be St. Mary's best friend because of his passion for St. Mary. Right? Um, Emba Boulis from Africa. Um, I barely know him. I just remember that when he visited once, that when he left, I was like, where do I sign up? Where, like, like, where's the dotted line? I'm ready to sign. When you're zealous, when you're into it, when you're excited, actually, you lift up and change everyone around you. The light turns on. Okay, so be zealous, St. Paul is saying. If you believe in this, zeal should be a, a product and you will be aglow with the Spirit, which means serving the Lord. It's about the Lord. It's from the Lord that we get our meaning. It's from the Lord we get our gifts. It's about the Lord. Faithfulness, as this whole theme of Romans has been, produces faithfulness think about how the black civil rights movement made it so far if people weren't zealous in the face of negativity if black people were not persistent and serving the cause in spite of all adversity would they have been successful i doubt it that's what being transformed that's what having renewal of your mind should look like verse 12 rejoice in the lord always um actually it's rejoice in your hope in thessalonians he says rejoice always but um be patient in tribulation rejoice in your hope he's saying find your joy find your patience because he's acknowledging 
that you're going to be in tribulation, as he has this whole thing. So he's not saying, because if you do this, you're never going to have a problem. He's saying, but the opposite. You will have problems. You will. But what will keep you sane is your hope. Hope meaning that thing that I expect that hasn't happened yet. In the black civil rights movement, it was liberation. I'm going to keep hope. I'm going to keep my strength. I'm going to stay sane in this battle because of the hope of liberation. That's what St. Paul's saying. Your future resurrection, your life in the spirit, let those be the cause of your hope, based on what we talked about in previous chapters. Um, be constant in prayer. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to talk about prayer because I don't really pray, so I'm not going to spend much time on that. Um, I think that's more of a, uh, Joe's alley. Um, so I hope that he will give us a talk, at least a talk on that. Um, all, all I can say um, from what I've been taught, because I, I really don't know how to pray, is um, to be, if you put on Christ, you're becoming your real identity. And if you become your real identity, you are in constant presence and constant communication with God. All I guess I can say to summarize it in a line, the only thing that, I, that maybe I would like to say is that prayer itself, the noun, is not an activity. Even though there are activities of prayer. Activity is a subheading under prayer, but activity is not the same as prayer unless you unless the activity is being. If it's being, then, then we're good. So I will skip that because I don't want to put myself into a bad situation. Verse 13. Um, contribute to the needs of the saints. Practice hospitality. This is such a big one right now. Um, those of you who have seen it in Joe's WhatsApp image, it's called the icon of hospitality. Um, because... SMSM, this is the church that this Bible study is a, is a part of. Um, I would say you guys are a church, thank God, that have a real focus on hospitality. So good for you. Most churches are, are I shouldn't say most churches. I have not personally seen many churches emphasize hospitality in this way. Because it says contribute to the needs of the saints, saying give to the poor. Open your doors to anybody who needs, not just to the poor financially. Anyone who needs contribute. This is so lacking these days, right? Some Today, people practice charity when they're going to make money. And am I going to get a tax return, an income tax return? I'd rather give it in this way to get a kickback. I'm not saying it's wrong to get a kickback. But is your giving dependent on whether it's done in that way? Um, or sometimes it's to get some service out of it. Or sometimes it's to look good. Or sometimes it's to feel good because you feel guilty about a sin that you did. Just give. Don't ask. Give active, actively, seek to give, and I don't just mean money. Time, thought, energy, kindness. People need it. You need it. We all need it, right? How many of us don't want to feel loved? How many of us, when we're down, don't want comfort, regardless of the method of it, of it is? You have needs. You're, you're needy, and I'm needy. 
So if we were to become real Christians, as St. Paul is saying in these chapters, no one would be needy because we would always be giving to each other. Verse 14. Um, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep, rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. In a, in a sentence... Get over yourself. Um, I'm laughing because Mina Buna Joe had a conversation about this earlier. Um, what does this look like? If you want to know what that looks like practically, this is, these are some ways it looks like, not, conclude, not the be-all, end-all. Don't associate only with people who are the same mood as you. Don't get worked up if someone says something about you. You've been persecuted. Someone cursed you, okay? Today, people don't come up to you and curse you in, like, the old like old world sense of like, by the gods I curse you, where there is a real intent of evil. But they do curse you in other ways. They might insult you, they might put you down, they might backstab, they might be conniving, they might put a bad word for you, they might give you like Zumba, they might give you a, some kind of bad standing with your boss, all sorts of things, okay? But St. Paul, this is in my view, because like I've said before, I believe Romans is its own gospel. This is the Sermon on the Mount part of the gospel, right? This is the part where St. Paul is saying, um, love your enemy. Um, so don't get worked up. Be friends with everyone, even outside your friend group. Don't be conceited, right? Don't think highly of yourself, as he said early. And then he says, um, share in the joy and the sorrow in the community. The church is not just about physical Eucharist, but this kind of liturgy too, as we said earlier. Where are you when people are down? Where are you when people are hungry? Um, COVID has been a really good way to see people's reactions. Some people's first reaction of COVID um, was to be like, woe is me. I am personally being deprived of, insert whatever it is here, anything. Um, I was listening to a podcast and the commercial in the middle said, one of my friends said that the thing that was the worst thing for her about, about this lockdown is that she can't go to the salon and her gray hair is showing. Um, I mean, it was a commercial, but I, I remember like just thinking, really? Like, that's your problem? Um, but for some people, it was personal space. For some people, it's finances. And, and I'm not saying there's zero validity to some of these things. But I'm saying, where did your mind go first? And how did you deal with it? Did you recognize you have a need, but then say, whatever, I have these needs, but let me go serve. Let me go ask about people who never get asked about. Maybe there are people who nobody ever, ever asks about. And that maybe we say hi to if we see them at church, but we never think about during the week. Do you think about those people? Those people are probably the ones who are most neglected right now, right? Think, think about those things. I won't, I won't sermonize. Um, too much. So he's saying share in the joy and sorrow in the community. So all this so far has been how to deal with the church within. Um, don't worry, most of the rest of this is going to go by quickly. If you're worried about time, we're almost there. Um, and now he's talking about both in and out of the community. Repay no one evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If possible, 
Um, so far as it depends upon you. So, saying, so uh, okay, so much as it's within your control, be at peace with everyone. Paul is recognizing that sometimes people just want to be in a bad mood and they just want to be angry. He's just saying, as far as it's in your control, fix it. Okay, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to God's confrontation, not to your confrontation. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will recompense, says the Lord. No, he's saying, so he's saying, you don't take revenge in your own way. That's not your job. It's not your job to make someone look bad. It's not your job to put someone in their place. It's not your job to expose anybody. No, your job, St. Paul is saying, is if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. This is exactly what our Lord said. He said, love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Then they said, who is my neighbor? And he gave the story of the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, because the Samaritan was seen as the enemy. This is what St. Paul is saying. It's the gospel. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. He's saying that in, in, in loving your enemy and returning good for evil, that's already his punishment because they don't know how to deal with that. That might be what itself brings him to repentance. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't be dejected and don't wave a white flag because somebody was mean to you or somebody treated you badly. Instead, he's saying overcome evil with good. Do what's good. Justice isn't yours. Okay, that's the point of the section. It's not yours. And if you want to understand this, it's because no injustice, if you want to be really objective, forgive me, no injustice is actually ever against you or me personally. Ever. It's against God. In a real Christian sense, to be quite frank, I don't think personally, I haven't worked this thought through long enough to understand terminology, but I don't believe there's space or room for um, us claiming to have human rights by the gospel for myself. Because the gospel is saying you don't have rights laid down. But why is every justice, injustice and injustice against God? Because you didn't make yourself. You didn't make yourself alive. You didn't make anything that's real. God did. So in other words, for example, if your parents gave you a, a sum of money, to use the analogy we used earlier, and someone ripped you off, the wrong that happened with that money, like the ripping off, was really the ripping off of God or of your parent because it was their money. Because you're in the image and likeness of God and because God is nice and shares with you, he allows you to have that ownership. But don't confuse God's niceness with fact. That fact is it's about God, not about you. And so if you're having a zeal for God, he's saying, if you care, if you want to, if you want to deal with it the way I would deal with it, it's the gospel. Don't return evil for evil. Don't put the people in the place. Don't act like it's your right. It's a very different mentality. And I'm sorry, almost every single one of us, even though we might make fun of them, many of us are ourselves some form of social justice warriors. Be careful. Um, Okay, chapter 13. I'm going to zoom through this one. I'm saying this one is super, super short. We're pretty much done now. Um, the first section is dealing with um, 
Uh, how do I go to the next chapter on here? Here we go. Sorry, guys. The first section is dealing with a very specific issue. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, and then he's going to repeat um, a little bit of what we said. So we're not, it's, we're, we're pretty much done and we can get to the questions. Um, this next section is about how to deal with the law. So you've got to remember that the Jews have a bitter taste in their mouth towards Caesar because they were expelled from Rome. Um, and then they've just recently come back. There's also this sense in the community, just because I think these verses that are coming up are sometimes abused. There's a sense of community of God is curious, curious. God is Lord, not Caesar, not Kaiser. Okay. And so some people are having a sense of, I don't know anything to um, the government. I don't owe civil obedience. And so St. Paul is going to school them in that regard. Um, and others were even saying, why pay tax? He's not my Lord. So let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I'm going to come to this in a second of what he means there, or what I think he means there. Therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. You will not be afraid of the rulers if you're somebody who more or less is moral. Right? You're only going to be afraid of the law if you're a lawbreaker, is what he's saying. Would you have no fear of him who's in authority? Um, then do what is good. If you want to have no fear, then do what's right. And you're not going to, not only will you not be in fear, you will receive his approval because he's God's servant for your good. That civil authority is good. But if you do wrong, be afraid um, because he does not bear the sword in vain. He's a servant of God to execute his wrath on the wrongdoer. We'll get to what he means by wrath in a moment, I hope. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Um, so he's saying your conscience should plague you if you're a lawbreaker. So if you are the one who runs a stop sign because no one's at the four-way, he's saying you should feel wrong. Your conscience, your conscience should, should prick you. If you're driving 130, 140, or 75, 80 um, in the States, um, you should feel guilty. Um, because there are civil laws that we are, we have a duty to obey. We have a duty to obey the civil law. And then he says, for the same reason, you also pay taxes. And he says, the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay them their dues. Taxes and taxes are due. This is Caesar, like our Lord said, under to Caesar with Caesar's and to um, uh, God with God's. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. He's saying, no, just because you're Christian doesn't mean that you're above the law. You're not above the law. The law of God takes precedent. So that's why none of these people, even St. Paul, had a problem resisting the law if there was going to be something against the truth. In all other cases, they did. So the issue in the, in the Roman context was taxation and civil duties. But what Paul is talking about, this whole wrath of God thing, is tying back, I hope you can remember, to Romans 2 and 3, and then also 9, 9 through 11. Because he was saying how God was um, put his wrath on the Jews and separated himself from them, took away their nation, took away X, Y, and Z, and so that the vessel that he used to do this was the Babylonians, was the Persians, was the Greeks, was the Romans. So he's saying, as a matter of fact, 
God is using them, the Romans, to chastise you guys. So he's saying, so you owe them um, respect. Verse 8. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Share. Owe no one anything except love. Don't, don't seek anything that gives you a due. Only seek to give. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Totally exactly what the Lord says. Keep in mind this is written before some of the Gospels were written. Right? The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in the sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is exactly what the Lord said. Where he, when they asked him what is the greatest commandment, he said, it's these two. Because within them, the whole law is there. So it's very clear that even though St. Paul is writing before the gospel, that the sayings of our Lord had already promulgated. Um, love does no wrong, objective wrong, to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What we owe to everybody is self-denial, to live for others, not to live for ourselves. If you, if you are a Christian, St. Paul is saying, that is what you look like. This is totally countercultural, not just to their time, but to our time. Today, many people are afraid of looking like a pushover if they do this. And Paul's saying, this is what you should look like, period. Besides this, you know what hour it is, how it is full time now for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us conduct ourselves becomingly as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Immorality, he's saying, if you are a Christian, immorality is a thing of the past. Part of this he's saying to the Romans, because you're saying, remember, you had your pagan issue, you had your your licentious issue, your, your sex issues, and all that kind of stuff, saying that's got to be gone. And instead he's saying the whole point of Romans, through the cross and in the cross, we are transfigured and transformed. We put on the Lord Christ. We become living icons of his death and resurrection. To become this death and resurrection, to become this death and dying at the same time as all that we just talked about, is to lay down the will, it's to put down your ego, it's to serve others, it's to use your gifts, it's not to be contentious with your gifts. I'm sorry, I don't want to keep moralizing, and I, I suck at conveying the meaning of this chapter because every single sermon in existence somehow is based on these two chapters, even if they don't know it. Everything is based on these two chapters. May we all put on the Lord Christ that we may be living proof of his death and resurrection. To him be glory, honor, and worship now and always and unto the age of all ages. Amen. Okay, let me pull up the questions because I saw um, some while I was going on there. I think there's three or four. Um, do, 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 do. Um, yeah, I didn't see something. Um, Sorry, I'm just filtering through the, the more administ um, messages. Uh, confirmed from a physiotherapist, biceps are not useful. Cool beans. I'm 
good. I didn't falsely teach. So one question was, the first question was, doesn't it say to go in the back in a wedding, not in the front? And I'm pretty sure that this question had popped up um, when I was talking about people who go to the back um, and stuff. So there's a difference between when something is your role and you are participating it and when you're being presumptuous. If someone's a deacon, for example, the church has tonsured or consecrated, forget deacon, a reader, a psalter, a subdeacon, you've been consecrated. You have been literally set aside for this duty. Your job description says you're hired now to sing. Just to use this as an easy example. Therefore, go sing. Um, actually, before I had moved to California, um, one of one of the my close friends, but he was also one of my servants growing up. He's in this room. Um, he used to get so mad at me, um, and rightfully, to be honest with you, um, that I would go into the inner sanctuary every liturgy, um, when really objectively, either I should have been dressing or not dressing, like that really should have been the right thing, um, and so. What our Lord is talking about is the wedding, is that in a wedding, what used to happen is that um, the hosts, they'd have this in a big hall or in a big house, the host would sit at the very front, like when you'd walk in, he'd be the furthest back, and those closest to them, the most prestigious, his best buddies, they would be near him. The poorer people, the less close people, and the slaves, they'd be closest to the entrance of the, of the room. And so our Lord was saying, when you're a guest versus when it's your role, when you're a guest, sit at the back and tell them to take you to the front. That's the, that's the difference. It's a great question. And that, that's in so many things. I got reamed by my father confession growing up because I was having this fake humility complex where I would be silent at servants meeting. While in the meantime, in my head, I had a billion opinions and I was judging the heck out of everybody in the room. Right? And so Buna was like, who do you think you are? And why aren't you saying it? And I'm like, oh, I'm trying to be silent. I'm trying to be humble. And he's like, are you a servant? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, it's the servant's meeting. The objective of the servant's meeting is to have a discussion. Are you a servant? Yes. Do you have points for discussion? Yes. Then discuss them at the servant's meeting discussion. I'm just like, yes, sir. Right? That we, we can practice these fake humilities um, sometimes. Um, anybody, by the way, willing to turn on their cams at this point would be great. Um, thank you, Farah. Um, cause I'm, I'm feeling super awkward right now. Um, thank you. Thanks guys. Um, what is the difference between judgment and discernment? That's a great question. How do we discern without judging? What does that look like practically? Um, the person asking this is, is a medical professional. So I'm going to use a medical example that I overuse. An evaluation or an assessment or analysis, the, diff okay, the core difference is measuring something versus evaluating someone or something, right? So it's saying this is this kind of ver person versus this is this kind of behavior. So to use an analogy from, from the healthcare world, um, when I was a pharmacist, okay, a patient comes in on a wheelchair. If I say this person can't walk, I'm not judging their person. 
I'm making an objectively true statement. This person cannot walk. That's why they're in a wheelchair. Okay? So, for example, um, versus, oh, wow, another handicapped. I'm starting to put something around the person's character as though they're different, right? Or saying, um, oh, here's a great example, and forgive me for using this as an example, and I'm using to show how offensive the difference can be. Saying, oh, my, my friend or relative or this person has Down's syndrome versus, dude, what are you, Down's? That's worked its way into it. One is showing that you think of a kind of person in a kind of way versus another. So I might notice that someone lied to me. That's different from approaching the person and calling them a liar. So noticing something, noticing a handicap is not the same as judging them. To me, that's the difference. So if, if that wasn't um, practically um, differentiating them, um, please follow up. Because I think that's such an important point. Because um, I think that sometimes people will say, who am I to judge and say that completely wrong, right? Even though we shouldn't judge, some people will say that wrongly too, right? Where it's like, no, there's nothing wrong with noticing that this isn't working. Like, who are we kidding, right? We're, we're in the negatives every month. What do you mean, who am I to judge? I'm evaluating that the, that the out is way more than the in, we're in the negative. That's not judging people. That's not saying you're bad people. It's saying we have a problem. Um, how do you get to know what gifts you do or don't have? Sorry, my th throat is hurting. Um, you're not going to know all of your gifts. Let me just start with that. Um, because I think often the community identifies your gift more than you do. Right? So what you're good at, you're just good at. And you might not even notice um, that you're good at it. Okay? And because you don't know that you're good at it, people will notice it. So, for example, um, think of people in your own community where you know where it's like, I'm down. I want to call this person. Why you are able to identify that they're just full of joy? Right? For something like that. So, I would say why I'm saying that is ask people. Um, find out why you want to know your gift, but ask people, um, and just say like, um, what do you see me doing in the service? If you were to choose a service, what gift do you, do you think that I, that I've got? Okay. Um, or another way is to look at what makes you the most happy. There's this conception that a lot of us have that service is supposed to suck. That we think if we're doing like spiritual service, because I've heard it in Sony Servants meeting, and I've said it a billion times. It's like, it's supposed to hurt. It's not supposed to be fun. Um, and there's merit to that. There's some merit to that in the sense of you are going to give and it is going to hurt. But it also doesn't mean that the goal of service is your misery. Right? And so ask yourself, where do you feel most joyous? Right? Some people, you put them in a Sunday school service. I don't mean to use just typical church services, but I'm going to use church services as examples. They have anxiety every time they go in to teach a lesson. After two years, they hate it, right? And they're like, I can't connect to these kids. I've tried. I don't know how. And I don't like messaging them. And I find it really awkward and weird. And then they ask me a question, and I'm not interested, 
right? And be like, whatever, you need to just do it. No, maybe that's just not where that person should be. Where another person's like, I hate people, okay? I get irritated by people. I don't like talking to people. I don't like joking people. Put me in a room. Tell me to tidy the books. Tell me to dust the shelves, right? Tell me to clean the shoria. I got you. Just don't ask me to talk to anybody, right? So ask yourself where you're like most excited. So sometimes I would tell people like in confession, um, if you could design a designer day or a designer week where there was no inhibitions, there was no schedule restraints, nothing. What would you do? How would you divide your time? Who would you talk to? Where would you be? Because whatever the answers are to those questions, those are the things that you really like. And where your gift is, this is why I care about people knowing their gifts a lot, okay? Where your gift is, that's what you share with God. Because as we said in this chapter, your gift is from God. So you're sharing an attribute of God in your gift, which means that you're going to get closest to God through those gifts. Because it's your language, right? Those who, for example, have the gift of compassion, they're going to probably most love about God how compassionate he is. Those who are really academic intellectuals, right? They're going to be like, oh, God, the true scientist, the true engineer, right? The, the best whatever. And everyone's right. Because that's where they're going to be relating to God, right? The true architect for those who are really into the engineering and the, and the, and the visuals, right? The great artist for those who love nature, right? Like everyone is going to be one of those. Like some of us are like, no, I, I just want to go out by a tree. And, and I'll, I'll tell you an example. You guys know Bonanna Stelsi. Um, most of you know Bonanna Stelsi. Um, St. Anthony from California Monastery. When I first got ordained, um, Abuna had requested from Emma Sabian that I go serve with him in Hawaii. So me and Abuna Sasi would have our, our two weeks on, two weeks off in, in Hawaii. And so when I was being introduced to the congregation, um, Emma Sabian went and Abuna Sasi was there um, so that they would know that I was being put there. So the day before they all left, I spent a whole day with Abuna Sasi. Um... And wow, like I found out that I'm not an extrovert. Um, Abuna Anastasi, I think we spent something like 16 to 18 hours together that day. And he was nonstop. Anyone who knows Abuna Anastasi, like knows. He just sucks in the energy and it, and, it, and it fuels his, right? Whereas I'm the complete opposite. My like, my, my sheikh and my, my charge starts to go down, right? And then I'm like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm like, I can't see more people. What is he doing? Um, and I went in to see Amba Sarabiyun. Uh, and I'm like, Sayyidina, I just want to make something really clear. I'm a little bit nervous right now. Um, am I, ex did you guys ask me to come here because you think I'm like that? Because I've got a lot in common with Buenasasi, but it's not that. Um, I was like, because I, 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 I will go crazy. Um, and if they're expecting that, they're going to hate me. Um, I'm like, I need like at least like five to six hours of complete and total silence, or I'm a really mean human being. Um, I was like, I need to, to take stuff in, um, and then I can be myself around people, and I'll be so chill. Um, and so Sayyidina laughed, and he was like, yeah, no problem, you have different gifts. He goes, I'm more like you, if there's any consolation. Um, so know, your, know where you thrive, right? Pay attention to when you're excited, to when you're not, and I think it'll become more obvious to you. When Pollard mentions renewal of your mind, it makes me think of emotional dependencies we have 
on family and friends. That's very insightful. And how these dependencies can be a roadblock to fully to full dependency on God. How does one release themselves from these dependencies and transfer that need to God? The reason I ask is it seems that until we can sever the ties of dependencies, we can't be truly liberated to love them freely. Yes and no. The simplest answer is Matthew 5 through 7, Romans 12 through 15. Because what Paul is saying, and I, I know you wrote this before we got to that part, um, what St. Paul was saying was truth for the sake of truth, right? He said, um, let me find the exact wording. He said, love, uh, be genuine, love genuinely. And authentic love is do it for the right reason. So what I'm trying to say is that if you are loving for the right reason, even if you have some unhealthy dependencies, by switching to the objective, you will start to be released from that not in a very natural way. Uh, how do we discern? <laughs> I saw something from a Bunajo. How do we discern between our weaknesses and what isn't our talent? Like if we feel we aren't encouraging, for example, do we have the mentality of this just isn't a talent that God has given me? Or should we just have the mentality that, that that's a sin or weakness of ours that we need to work to fix? Well, which makes sense. Yeah, like as in like, should you try and fix the gift that you don't have, like like comforting? Um, no, because objectively, if it's not a sin, you don't need to worry about it. I mean, you can try and get better at it, right? Like you could improve communication skills, right? But like, okay, um, when I'm nervous, part of this is self-awareness. I, I laugh, like I start laughing. <laughs> so when someone's really tense and I just start laughing, <laughs> it really pisses them off, right? And so... If I can control my laughter, then I should. But if I can't control my laughter, then maybe it's wise for me to to, to step out, right? Um, I remember laughing hysterically in someone's confession once. Um, the person was so aggravated, um, and I felt so guilty, but I couldn't stop, right? So it's like we sometimes have to like it's about self. I'm not going to start laughing. We do need to become self-aware, okay? Um, we do need to um, figure ourselves out. And if the weakness isn't to sin, just do what you can to strengthen it. And that's and that's it, right? And that's what I'm saying. When I know that I can't, what I'll do personally is I'll, I'll explain to them what's going on. Where I'm just like, just so you know, when I'm nervous, I laugh, right? Or I also laugh and it gets awkwardly silent, um, which is what had triggered it in my confession the, the one time. Um, well, I, I don't know how to react, so I do it just so you know that I'm not laughing at you, right? Um, or sometimes when I've been called as a priest to comfort somebody, I called them up and I and I said, literally, dude, like, I suck at the death thing. I, I don't know what to tell you. I really don't. Um, it must be sad. I hope that things are fine. Can you just tell me what to do? If you're down to, like, play video games, I'm down for that. But, like, to speak to you Bible verses and, like, how nice Jesus is, some people know how to authentically do that, really authentically, and it's so comforting. I don't, right? So it's 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 about being real where you don't, so you don't offend somebody. Uh, shouldn't we be upset against an injustice against God, though, if we love him? Um, this is the person that I laughed at in confession. <laughs> I didn't realize you were in the room. Um, but um, yes and no. It depends on what you mean. 
I shouldn't be offended on a personal level as a sense of ownership, as though my right has been violated, right? But I think that the more we come to see everything as gods, and the more we come to see everything in life as gifts, I think the less we'll have that thought and the more that we'll say, Lord, it's yours, fix it. Lord, I'm yours, use me. Lord, they're your children, speak. Lord, they don't understand, right? The same way that our Lord himself did, right? Is that when they were ju- when they were wronging the Lord on the cross and it was actually his actual right to be upset, right? It was his real right to be upset. He said, they don't get it, forgive them, right? So um, there can be a healthy sense of zeal. So that's what I'm saying, no, you're not totally off. Yes, there is a healthy sense of zeal. But I think what we should feel zeal towards is injustice towards others, not to ourselves. So I should be upset if somebody is victimized. I should be upset that there are people in poverty. I should be. Right? I should be upset if um, somebody got wrecked when they shouldn't have. Um, How do I reconcile these verses with laws that blatantly go against our faith or belief? For example, uh, Calgary passed a law banning conversion therapy, and according to the law, any discussion which discourages a transgender person from changing genders or someone gay from following through on their attraction to same sex is illegal. Yeah, and that's why it's in the Lord, right? That civil duty, um, and this is a really tough one in our generation, because the world that Paul lived in is totally different than our world. Because the civil authorities, until recent times, they were always religious. They were always religious. Um, this atheist phenomenon, this secular phenomenon, that's new. Most governance um, were actually theocratic in some level over all of history. Um, and so we're dealing with new problems because now secular laws are being placed intentionally to aggravate religious peoples. Um, and so that's why it's, it's, it's in the Lord. Um, not to get into the COVID discussion, because I, I know we're all over it. But that's why, to me, the question around COVID was not about almost anything that like that happened. It was a question of, is this a case where civil disobedience makes sense? And I'm not saying I have an opinion or that I reached an answer. But that, yes, there is such thing as civil disobedience. Um, and I would say, obey the law of the Lord first. And if they persecute you for righteousness sake, blessed are you. Um, it just really sucks. It's not a good answer, but sorry. Um, at what point does my opinion become truth? Does it depend on how much knowledge you have on the subject or person? Absolutely not. Um, sorry, this is my like topic of obsession. Something is true only if it is true and it, it's being true has absolutely, and I'm using the word absolutely here, nothing to do with you or me or the Pope or St. Mother Teresa. Something being true is because God is true. It is either true or it is false. So I have no authority to club people with the truth. And I have no authority to go at people and say, well, then you just are a lover of lies. Because if you're going to be consistent, you probably are too. And I don't mean the person asking the question. I mean all of us. Okay? Um, 
because we're very selective about what truths we pursue, um, if we're going to be really honest with ourselves, and which ones we let slide. Right? Where we might with one friend be like, somebody comes to complain to you about your friend and be like, oh my gosh, he's so arrogant. You're like, no, that's just so-and-so. But then there's another person where you're like, you are arrogant. And you are causing so many souls to leave the church. And it's like, why did you choose that one? Right? Why didn't you choose everybody to, be, to beat over the head with the truth? Right? So the truth is, is, is not about my opinion. My opinion, what I should be doing, is trying to conform my opinion with the truth. This is, I love this question because it ties this whole chapter, the first chapter all together. This is what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means that your first question is, what should my mind say? Um, I miss him. Um, what should my mind say? Is my mind conforming to truth or do I think that my mind is the truth? Um, that's my answer to question number one. Question two, what if someone really thinks that they have a gift but they don't have it? Should we remove opportunities for them to use this gift because it is more destructive to the body of Christ? That's where you should submit yourself to the right authorities. Right? And these are very hard situations. Okay? Like sometimes somebody wants to be, um, I'm trying to think of some of my experiences in churches as a, as a person in charge, because I was never really in charge before priesthood. So I'm, I'm, forgive me. Or no, forget it. Even in the pharmacy. The pharmacy is a better example so that it, it doesn't feel as confrontational to people who might know me here. So sometimes I'd have a technician who thinks she's as skilled as someone else. She's not. Okay? Um, and... She wanted to have like the position of like head technician of writing the schedules, but she's disorganized and she's slow. Right? So if I am so first of all, another tech has no right to try and rebuke, chastise, or teach the other tech. It's not their job. The other tech should go to the person in charge, the pharmacist in the situation, and say, I am frustrated by this situation, not by this person, by this situation. These behaviors are causing such and such reactions. I want to bring it to your attention in case um, you're not aware or in case you didn't notice. Done. It's not your responsibility. Because the person in charge is in a situation. The person in charge needs to deal with it pastorally. They don't have to go to the other person and be like, you know you suck, right? You know you're holding us all down. Do you realize that our productivity has gone down by like 30% ever since that you held this position? Like, what's wrong with you? Get your act together or go. What? No. Right? Instead, I think that the leadership should be looking for those gifts so that they can, they can find them, discover them. Right? To put people where they thrive. Because once people are there where they thrive, it is better. The problem is that most of us covet other people's gifts like we talked about earlier. We want to be the priest. We want to be the deacon. We want to be on the board. We want to be the chief of the service. We want to be the one who gives the sermons. We want to be the one that's in the face of things. So the real thing to me is, is people have to stop wanting that, but to let only those who should... So to deal with number two, ask yourself whether you ought to be the one assessing, yes or no. And if the answer is no, then ask, why am, I, why am I reacting the way that I am? Is it because I just hate this person or I don't like this thing? Um, because if no, maybe I need to practice virtue, and that, in which case I should go speak to my spiritual guide. 
and say, here's a chance for me to practice virtue. But if it's a real, genuine, objective thing, then go to the one responsible and say, what do I do? Uh, question three, um, uh, as much as depends on you, um, is what St. Paul said about conflict, right? Um, in the context of this verse, should we defend ourselves if we are falsely accused in the church or just take it humbly? I would say it depends on the measure of the gift of humility that you have. Because if you are a perfect Christian, which you are not and I am definitely not, you would be able to just take it. If we were all living perfectly towards the gospel, then we would. Because our Lord, remember that the whole point of this is saying, what does a Christian look like? It looks like Christ. What did our, our Christ, our Lord say when they called him Satan? When they said, you are doing this in the name of Satan, what did he do? When they said, you're a liar, what did he do? Right? There were times where he was silent, and there are times where he responded. But even when he responded to the Satan thing, he didn't even defend himself. Actually, his response was, don't worry about me. I get why you don't trust me. I get it. No problem. Um, but your problem here is you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, not me. He actually, even there, emptied himself and made it about the Holy Spirit, not himself. Right? So in perfection, that we shouldn't. So if you're going to speak, acknowledge that it's your weakness, not your right. Right? So you can come. So in the analogy that we, I, like, I sometimes like to use is, okay, all Christians are called to love 100%. Let's pretend that's lifting 1,000 kilograms. Okay? Um, I might only be able to handle 400. So I might reach a point where everyone's yelling and screaming at me and trying to get me to carry 500, and I can't. I can't. I can only carry 400. The question is, how do I say that? What's wrong with you morons? Can't you see I can't carry 400, 500? Why are you all being jerks? You guys barely carry anything yourself, and here I am carrying 400. You only carry 100, and that guy only carries 50, and here you are yelling at me that I do 400. Is that what you say? Right? Or do you say... Guys, I wish that I was able, because if we're true Christians, we should wish. I wish I was able to carry 500. I genuinely can't. I tried. I really can't carry 500. Um, if maybe three or four of us carry it together, maybe we'll be able to do it. Um, but if you ask me to carry it on my own, I'm sorry. I confess my weakness. I can't carry 500. It's how you say it. And whether you really believe that. Because if you believe that, you will, as St. Paul said in these chapters, I'm saying these chapters, in my view, are everything. It's why Romans 12 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Because it's telling you what you should look like if this is real to you. And what he's really accusing us all of, if you don't look like this, are you really living as a baptized Christian with Christ's death and resurrection in vain? Is there a measure of how... By the way, anybody who's sick of it, please feel free to go. Like, I'm sorry. Um... Is there a measure of how you can tell that you lived a good day? Yes, the gospel. What is the goal of each day? The gospel. If you're loving to someone in need, the gospel. That I try to be like Christ, that is the gospel. How do I know today was a good day or whatever the goal is in a Christian daily life? I would almost say, as much as I have said to people, was it a good day or a bad day? I mean it in terms of assessing against the, the Bible, against the gospel. But I'd almost say, don't even bother. 
just ask, am I right with you, Lord, right now, in this moment, right? Am I answering this person right now, Lord, as you would? If I didn't, am I very quick to be like, ooh, I fell short, right? Like, I am in a bad mood and I told off this person. Let me fix it quickly, right? Let me, let me reconcile. Uh, can you give an example of how someone can perceive to have the gift of prophecy when they don't? Does this relate to preaching, teaching? Yeah, it relates to everything. Um, in, in one way or another, and I don't mean to be extreme about this, what would Jesus do on your wrist is a statement. You're saying what he would do. So I really hope that if you're wearing one that you really do it. I'm not saying don't wear one, okay? But I'm just saying if I were to say, for example, in all of the fights about is COVID the wrath of God, and I don't care. Okay, I'm not going to have that conversation. But in answering definitively yes or no, you are claiming to have the gift of prophecy. You are saying, God is saying, I'm mad at you. Or you are saying, God is affirmatively not saying this. I don't know, personally. I have no idea. So I shouldn't say anything. Right? Or... When somebody asks you a question of saying, what should I do in this situation? Do you just answer right away? Or do you stop and be like, what is the objectively true answer? Are you conformed by the trans renewal of your mind to this answer? Or am I just giving my opinion as if my opinion is the truth? That's pretending to have prophecy. Right? Or I'll see it in servants meetings. Forgive me, with youth services in particular, because that's where I was most active in the past. Right? Where... You'll have a bunch of ideas and something like, um, no, I, I, I really don't think we should do that. Um, the, the, the kids are going to respond like this. And that's not right. The right way to handle this is this. Tameen, who are you? Right? Or another person of um, uh, so-and-so confided in me that they are struggling with such and such sin. Don't worry, I handled it. Um, I prefer that it goes through me. I get them. Who are you? Right? So that's claiming gift of prophecy, that you have the gift of prophecy even to counsel this person of God. Right? I, I personally, I learned this from my, my, the father who raised me, when I was in Kitchener. Um, he always taught me to always pray because he does this, and I've never stopped doing it because of him. Whenever I'm going to meet somebody, whenever I'm before a confession, before a phone call, I always pray first, and I say, Lord, these are your children, not mine. Let me be a vessel of your speech. Please protect them from me. I don't want to harm them. Because what if I am giving advice from me? I could hurt them. Right? And I thought it was a great idea. And then they go and say it to their parents and they get wrecked. And then they come back and be like, oh, well, your parents are dumb. They shouldn't have received it that way. What can I do? No. Right? So there's so many ways that we, that we pretend it. Uh, which Bible version am I using? I'm using the uh, the second Catholic edition of the RSV. What if you actually are the most nodal in something specific in a group of people? How do you try to convey your truth without seeing pretension? First of all, it's not your truth. So remove that from your vocabulary. It is either the truth or it's not true. Period. And that has nothing to do with your person or my person. So like, let's practice that getting out of our vocabulary. I'm not being a jerk to you. It's because our, our society is all about that. What's your truth? And it's become the most cliche thing ever. 
Um, if there's such thing as versions of the truth, then there is no such thing as truth. Um, so I would say that the easiest way is ask, am I in a position to speak? Have I been asked, is it my role? If it's not my role, it is none of my business. Right? So if I get up and say, I'm going to write a book because I've got something important to say. There's a sense of self in there. I'm not saying people should never write books. Um, I'm going to write a blog. I'm going to write a paper. I'm going to, um, I'm going to start a live streaming service. Um, I'm just using all obvious, really in your face stuff, but it, it can happen on the micro. What am I thinking when I do that? Am I thinking I'm the right one? Because what, in my view, what should happen is ideally first ask, what is my position? For example, a parent must parent. They're not being presumptuous to parent. A teacher at school is not being presumptuous to teach content. It is their job to teach content. A servant at church has a responsibility to outreach their kids and to prepare for a lesson. They have a responsibility to brainstorm ideas to get content to their kids. No problem. Not, not a problem with that. Is it my rule? Number one, is it in my scope? Number two, am I self-initiating? Or did I first go ask? Always ask first, right? Always ask first. And your spiritual guide might say, yeah, absolutely, Taban, go for it. But make yourself subject to obedience to protect yourself from your ego. Um, otherwise, you will start to think that the truth is yours. Um, it is better. Here's actually your question. Relates more to the question earlier about sitting at the front or the back. This is exactly what that question is about. It's saying, let someone tell you to do this as opposed to not. I'll tell you something. Um, I started writing um, when I was in first, like first, second year uh, pharmacy, like CoptichHymns.net days. Um, and I'd write these articles and I felt really good about myself and I thought I was all of that in a bag of chips. And then the webmaster of my church's website at the time went and took my articles and put them on the church website. And that made me feel incredible. Right? Where I was just like, the only content on this website is the priest and mine. And I am only like 19, 20 years old. Right? And I really like was feeling myself. And so I would actually go, I'm just being so real with you guys. I would go every day and just look at it. I would reread my articles. Right? I'm just, like, I'm just saying like all of, all of us are prone to pride and being like, hmm, this one's not bad. Right? This one's this and this and this and this and this. So one day as I went to self fanboy myself, um, I discovered that the articles were no longer there on, on the church website. So I went in for confession and one of the nurses goes, so you had some articles on the website. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, they're gone now. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I ordered them taken down. And so I was like, okay. Um, and he goes, I read them. Some of them were not that good. Um, he was like, a couple were not bad. Um, and he was like, but it's not the time. This is not the time to be feeding your ego, to be like seen, to have your name known, um, for people to look at you, for people to praise you. He goes, so even though obviously I'm happy that you have skill, 
spiritually, I don't think it's right for you. And so I was like, okay, then what is my rule? He goes, well, since you're already on the site and since they asked you, because I was asked, so if you can continue on there um, for now and we'll revisit it. But outside of that, zero writing, zero public writing. Um, and then eventually he's like, but I want you to actually send me your, your personal meditations to see what's going on in your heart rather than with your mind. I didn't write again until 2014 when my present father confession said, write. And I didn't even ask him. So that I could have just, just because I know my ego. I know what I'm capable of doing. Right? So sit at the back, wait for instruction. It's not your truth. Um, uh, what rules do boundaries play in any in laying our lives for others? Um, theoretically, none. Okay, theoretically, none. And the reason I'm saying theoretically is because there's only one boundary, there's only one actual real boundary to love it's the gospel. That's the only real boundary. Okay. And so what I mean is I can't kill in the name of love. That's not, that's not allowed. That's against the gospel. That's against truth. Um, however, like in the analogy we used earlier, um, where boundaries might come in are with the subjective aspect of how much am I able to carry? And so, yes, sometimes we do need to set boundaries. I'm not against boundaries. I'm just saying if we were perfect, there'd be no such thing. I wouldn't have any boundaries. I'd be giving with my whole self. But because we're not perfect, yes, we sometimes do need to set boundaries. Um, and so because of that, um, I would say get help with setting boundaries, go to a spiritual guide or a trusted servant that you can see has experience with it, um, so that you lay them properly and rightly. Um, as a follow up to the judging versus discerning question. Um, and I think there's only one more question after this. I find it challenging to discern or discuss the merits of something without feeling like I know better. That's so honest. How could you approach, sorry, my allergies are acting up. How can you approach thinking or discussing something without letting your ego drive? Um, I'm sorry, because then it said, uh, oh, don't read the next part out loud. Good, I did it right this time. Okay. That is such an honest question. I'm glad that that's being asked because that's where self-honesty comes from. That's where the asking, why am I saying this and what am I doing for? That comes from, a, am I taking pride in the truth as if it is my truth? Or am I rejoicing in the truth? Because if I'm rejoicing in the truth, I'll be excited to say the truth for the sake of it. Right? So for example, if... Let's say I know tons about cars. I don't, but let's pretend I know tons about cars. And so somebody um, is driving their car and they didn't understand why it was doing something messed up. Because I have a friend who's really good at cars. And the minute he's in the car, he's like, oh, it's this. And he fixes it in a second. And suddenly this thing that was going wrong for me that I didn't know how to fix, that was driving me crazy, is fixed in a second. If the person was rejoicing just in fixing the problem in the truth... He won't associate with himself, right? He's just excited that he knows cars well enough because cars to him are beautiful, not about his knowledge of cars, right? And then he'll be excited that my car is being fixed 
not excited that he's smarter than me when it comes to cars. Right? So if he start if he's young as like a huh, you didn't know that? Right? Or be like, wow, you really don't know much about cars, huh? That's the difference between the two. Right? And so what I have to work towards is I am not the truth. God is the truth. I only become the truth when I am actually in his image and likeness. And so my struggle should always be to be light, to be truth, because they're synonymous. I should always be saying, how do I live the gospel in this precise moment? And if I discover that I'm not speaking truth for the sake of truth, um, in my opinion, and I don't want to say this generally because there are, there's some things that are situational. For me, I'd, I'd probably prefer to stop talking or if you're more comfortable, confess your sin out loud. I do that more now. I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. Of saying, I'm fully saying this to show off right now. I'm sorry. Right? You can get you can get released from saying sins out loud right away. It's actually so helpful. I hope that answered. I'm not sure if it did. Um, last question I received. Regarding the capacity analogy, carrying a certain amount, should we strive to carry more? Yes, most definitely you must. Every Christian should desire to lift a thousand. And so my, like, I, I just don't want to give general rules to people because I'm not almost anyone in here is father of confession, but my rule to most people is do what you can plus one. Okay. The plus one is the forcing yourself to go out of your comfort zone to keep trying to carry more so that if this week I carried 500 next week, I'm going to start, I'm going to struggle with 501. I might get an injury. I was set back to 475. No problem. I'm going to struggle to go back to 480 next week. No problem. I just need to always struggle for it more. This, by the way, is what made the saints saints. This, by the way, is where spiritual gifts come from. This is where God starts to trust people. Of saying, you're so faithful. You're just caring because you want to carry for the sake of love. Okay, I'm giving you this um, for the sake of everybody. Because you're going to use it the right way. You're not going to beat people over the head with it. So yes, always strive for more. That was the last question. Thank you, guys. Um, uh, next week, God willing, we'll finish Romans. Um, uh, Romans 14, 15, 16 we'll do next week. Because 14, 15 are dealing with... He's going to revisit the conflict between the two. It's not very long. And 16 is mostly his like farewells to specific people. There's almost no um, content that we're going to actually deal with. Um, so... God willing, will be done the book of Romans next week. Um, and um, please keep me in your prayers. Go in peace. The peace are with you all. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.